Welcome to Behind the Knife's Absite Review Series, revamped for the 2024 exam. Want to read along? Do it with our updated Absite Review book. All of this and more can be found on our website, behindthenife.org, and on our brand new, totally awesome Android and iOS apps, which are due out in December. We appreciate your support, and if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Now, dominate the day and dominate the Absite. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2024 Abside podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier that they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like Tri-Staple Technology, V-Lock Barb Suture, ProGrip Mesh, and Ligature Vessel Sealing. With newer products such as the MaxTac Motorized Fixation Device, the newest Ligature XP Maryland, and the Sonicision Curved Jaw Cordless Ultrasonic Device, Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is engineering the extraordinary. With 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Okay, behind the knife, Absite Review, we're on colorectal part two. So I'm here back again with Kevin and John, so let's do it. So part two, colorectal, ulcerative colitis. Kevin, how do we define ulcerative colitis? So this is a chronic inflammatory condition affecting the rectum and extending proximally. Always spares the anus. Okay, great. And what are some buzzwords associated with ulcerative colitis that you might see? Yeah, this is a mucosal disease. It's contiguous and has characteristic crypt abscesses and pseudopolyps. Okay. What are some basic management principles? The majority of these patients can be managed medically, which we'll dive into shortly, but 15 to 30% will eventually require surgery. Okay. And what are your medical therapies? So steroids for acute flares, mesalamine for maintenance, and then infliximab also for maintenance if resistant to the mesalamine. Okay, perfect. Indications for surgical intervention in ulcerative colitis? So medical intractability, then of course malignancy and other complications from colitis, such as a stricture, perforation, or fulminate slash toxic colitis. Okay, so you mentioned medical intractability, and you're a little bit vague there. So what, what actually constitutes medical intractability? So things such as growth failure in children, the conditioning worsening while on medical therapy, if the condition is insufficiently controlled while on maximal medical therapy, if patients don't tolerate the medical therapy, chronically, such as being on chronic steroids, and then disabling extra intestinal manifestations that do respond to colectomy. Yeah, so those things that do respond, like you say, like large joint arthropathy, erythromendosum, episcleritis, those do respond to a colectomy. Are there things that don't, you know, associated conditions that don't respond to a colectomy? Yeah, unfortunately, primarily, primary sclerosing cholangitis does not. Yeah, so some of those hepatobiliary manifestations, unfortunately, as you say, do not respond to colectomy. So what is the association between ulcerative colitis and a malignancy? So you have an increased risk of malignancy associated with the prolonged inflammation state that you're in with ulcerative colitis. Okay, so how should we survey these patients? So it depends, but patients with extensive colitis going from proximal to the splenic flexure, they need endoscopy after eight years of disease and then every one to two years. Okay, so endoscopy every years and then every one to two years. What do we do during that endoscopy? So they're going to do a four-quadrant random biopsy. should be performed at 10 centimeter intervals throughout the involved segment of colon. 
along with directed biopsies of suspicious lesions. Great. Yeah. Four quadrant random biopsy every 10 centimeters for the involved segment, as well as targeted, as you say. So what do you do then if it does come back as a malignancy or a high-grade dysplasia? So in this situation, you have to do a total proctocolectomy with or without IPA. Yep. Total proctocolectomy with or without IPA. Great. Okay. What are the surgical options in ulcerative colitis? So if it's an emergent case, uh, you can do a total or subtotal colectomy with endoleostomy. You can do the, perfor- the perform the completion proctectomy and IPA later if it's an emergent case. For elective options, once again, you can do the total proctocolectomy with endoleostomy. Uh, this is curative and removes all pathologic tissue, and commits, the, but does commit the patient to a lifelong ostomy. You can do a total proctocolectomy with IPAA. is the most common procedure in the elective setting. The advantage is no long-term stoma, but you may have complications in the pouch, such as pouchitis, and you must have good baseline continence to have an IPAA performed. And you have to be sure that it's UC and not Crohn's, as Crohn's won't be curative. Okay, yeah, uh, great. I think that's good. So in that emergency setting, right, you had toxic colitis perforation. You're, I mean, you're doing a, a total or subtotal colectomy, and you're doing an endoleostomy, and then you're going to later stage it and th- potentially complete that proctectomy with the IPAA. Now, if you have the advantage of being an elective, you're doing your definitive operation, you're doing that total proctocolectomy. And then depending on individual uh, uh, patient factors, you might do an endoleostomy, you, you might do an IPAA, you may with a diversion or without a diversion. So there are multiple stages or single stages that these procedures can be done in. And that's going to depend a lot on the individual patient factors as well as the surgeon preference and experience. So what about the total abdominal colectomy, not proctocolectomy, so total abdominal colectomy with ileal rectal anastomosis in UC? Yeah, so they must have an uninvolved rectum. So it's only used in highly selective cases. And the rectum is still at risk for undergoing ongoing disease and risk of cancer. Yeah, so you, we could do that in that select circumstance that you, that you stated. You, you need annual surveillance of that residual rectal cuff. Okay, great. Okay, John, so you see Kevin rightfully said that if you're going to do a pouch, you need to make sure that it's not Crohn's disease. So let's go down that pathway. Let's talk a little bit about Crohn's. How do you describe or define Crohn's disease? Yeah, Crohn's is defined as a chronic, incurable, inflammatory disorder that can affect any segment of the intestinal tract, where terminal ileum is the most common, and it usually spares the rectum. Okay, so you get rectal sparing, TI, most common, as you say. This is one of those ones that has a bimodal distribution, so you'll see it present in patients in their 20s to 30s, and then again in patients in their 50s and 60s. But what are some buzzwords that you may see in like a question stem that's going to tip you off that you're dealing with Crohn's? Yeah, if the stem is mentioning transmural involvement, segmental, or the characteristic creeping fat, you may see a picture of that too. Yeah, so remember, UC is limited to the mucosa, and it affects the colon continuously, whereas in Crohn's, we have it's segmental and transmural. Okay, there are some different phenotypes that are going to affect how patients present. So what are the three main phenotypes of Crohn's disease? So you have your inflammatory type. Uh, fibrostenotic and penetrating. And these are all kind of overlap and change and can be a mixture of the two. Yeah, but, yeah those are the three to remember though. Inflammatory, fibrostenotic, penetrating, that's going to uh, affect how the disease presents. And as you say, there can be overlap, combination, that can change within the same patient. How about some extra intestinal manifestations of Crohn's disease? Yeah, these are kind of high yield actually. So arthritis, arthralgias, megablastic anemia, and that's secondary to the malabsorption of B12 in the terminal ileum. 
uveitis and urethema nodosum. Okay. Okay. What's what, what are medical therapies for Crohn's? So typically steroids are kind of the hallmark treatment for most acute flares. You can use mesalamine for maintenance and fliximab. It can be used for resistant disease or a lot of rectal disease. Okay. So what is that? So infliximab, that anti-TNF, right? So anti-TNF therapy, but it's infliximab, adalimumab. Um, what is that primarily used for? Yeah, like I mentioned, it's used to treat the fistulizing disease uh, and the perianal disease associated with Crohn's. Okay, great. Okay. Uh, when is surgery indicated with Crohn's? So surgery is not curative, unlike in UC, where you can get a potential cure. It's mostly reserved for complications of the disease. So strictures, obstruction, malignancy, perforation, and fistulas. It, it takes an experienced surgeon to deal with Crohn's disease. But you want to preserve as much small bowel as possible because they're going to most likely need multiple resections over the course of their lifetime. Okay. So what about, especially in the setting of like a fibrostenotic Crohn's disease, how do you manage symptomatic strictures? So if it's proximal or extremely distal in the small bowel, you can try to treat it endoscopically and then you can do endoscopic dilation. Otherwise, you may need to perform a resection or strictoplasty. Okay. And I think we should mention that I put this in the, the setting of that fibrostenotic, but remember that you can get inflammatory crows that can cause a partial obstruction. And those you can decompress and treat with the steroids. And often once the inflammation goes down, things will open up. So this is you know specifically talking to that fibrostenotic Crohn's disease. So let's talk more about those stricturoplasties too. So what types of stricturoplasties and uh, how does the length of the stricture uh, affect our choice of stricturoplasty? Yeah, so you go back. So if you do have a very short segment disease, resection is the most commonly performed. Like you said, just take as much small bowel as you need. But if you do need to do a stricturoplasty, there are a few different types. So for short strictures, less than 10 centimeters, you can do a Heineke-Mikowitz stricturoplasty. And what's that? It's a longitudinal incision on the stricture, and then you would close it transversely. For medium-length strictures, 10 to 20 centimeters long, you only do a finny stricturoplasty, or at least it's an option. This is where you fold the stricture segment on itself and make a common channel within the loop. It's best if you look these up and look at a good diagram of how these strictureplasties are performed to kind of grade them into your mind. Long strictures, greater than 20 centimeters, you can do a Michelassi stricturoplasty. It's similar to a Finney. It's a side-to-side isoperistaltic stricturoplasty. Excellent. Yeah. So the length of your stricture is really going to dictate what your options are. So be familiar with those in case they give you that description of these long strictures and you know ask you what the best way of, of the surgically managing these are. What's one thing you have to remember when you're dealing with these strictured segments? And that's, that's very important that you don't want to miss. Yeah, you want to always perform biopsies of the stricture segment to rule out malignancy. Yep, okay, right, exactly. So biopsy of the strictures, make sure you're not inadvertently leaving a malignancy behind. The most common complication after these things is typically bleeding. And of course, these patients can be high risk. So you need to look out for malnutrition, any presence of inflammation, perforation, fistula, and suspicion for malignancy would be a contraindication to just simply perform a strictoplasty. Okay, so moving on, let's dive into malignancies and colon cancers. So Kevin, let's go through some screening recommendations for colon cancer. So let's just say it's you or me, average, your average person, asymptomatic, average risk. Well, when do we start screening? Well, it's coming up pretty soon for you. You need to start at 45 yeah. and do it every 10 years. Thank you for the reminder. Okay, yeah, 45 every 10 years. So let's say I had a first-degree relative that had colon cancer. Uh, when should my screening start? 
So you should start at 40 or 10 years before the age of the youngest relative's diagnosis. Okay. And then how often do I need my colonoscopy? Yeah. You got to do it more frequently every five years. Okay. Well, let's say I had a cousin or a second degree relative with colorectal cancer. Does that change anything? No, it doesn't. Back to 45 years old and every 10 years. Yeah. So second degree relative is just treated. You're just treated like your average asymptomatic average risk patient. Okay. What about uh, in the setting of FAP? When do I need to start screening? Uh, between the ages of 10 and 12. Okay. And how in the frequency? Every one to two years. Okay. What about hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer, HMPCC? So this, you started at 20, between 20 and 25, and they need it every one to two years also. Okay. Another thing that, that frequently comes up is findings. We have some abnormal findings on colonoscopy. And then when do we need to repeat that colonoscopy for that patient? So let's go through some of those. So Let's say we have one to two tubular adenomas. What's the, your colonoscopy interval? Seven to 10 years. Greater than three? Three years. Three years, okay. Advanced adenomas, so those are defined as greater than one centimeter, high grade, they have dysplasia or the villus. When do you need a repeat colonoscopy? And that's also provided that, that adenoma is completely endoscopically resected. Yeah, three years. Three years, okay. And let's say, hyper, what about hyperplastic polyps? 10 years. Yeah, so those are just considered average risk. So those are very high yields, uh, and those will come up. So you do need to know those. So what if you found a malignant polyp on, on your colonoscopy? So a malignant pedunculated or sessile polyp may be managed endoscopically if the following criteria are met. The polyp can be removed in one piece. The resection margins are free of dysplasia or cancer. The lesion is well or moderately differentiated and no angiolymphatic invasion and there's limited submucosal invasions. Cancer cells two millimeters or less past the muscularis mucosa. Yeah, so yeah, those, so it is possible for pedunculated polyps, malignant polyps to manage those endoscopically, but they have to meet all of those criteria. So malignant polyps that do not meet low-risk criteria or cannot be adequately removed via endoscopic techniques require an oncologic resection. So colon cancers is unfortunately one of those ones that you need to know the TNM staging and you need to have committed to memory. So we're going to go through it. It's also in the book, so spend some minutes looking at it. So let's just go through it. So your tumor stage in situ is when it involves only the lamina propria. Your T1 tumors invades the submucosa. T2 invades the muscularis propria. T3 invades through the muscularis propria and into the pericolonic tissue, whereas T4 penetrates the serosa, that is T4A, or invades and is adherent to surrounding structures, that's T4B. So with regard to nodal status, N1 is one to three nodes. N2 is broken up into A and B. So N2A is four to six, and N2B is seven plus nodes. And your M stage, of course, M0 is no distant metastasis, whereas M1 is distant metastasis. Now to translate that over into the staging. So stage one is a, a, a T1 or T2 tumor with no nodes, no metastasis. Stage 1, T1, T2, no nodes, no metastasis. Stage 2 is a T3 or T4 lesion, again, with no nodes and no metastasis. Stage 3 is where you start to see some nodal spread. So that's NET stage, N1 or 2, and no metastasis. And then stage 4, NET, NEN, and then there is metastasis. So this is, as we talk into our treatments, Knowing these T-stage distinctions is going to be important into guiding management, so it is very important to yeah, know. Yeah, I will say there's a pretty good chart within the text that kind of divides these out nicely. Yeah. Probably one of the best charts I've seen, honestly. 
So be sure you listen to it over and over again and look at this chart and make sure you commit that to memory. This is one of the things you're just going to need to know. Okay, but how do we, I said nodal status and positive nodes. How do we define a positive node? Yeah, that's if there's 0.2 millimeters of cancer deposit. Yeah, 0.2 millimeters deposit of cancer cells, that constitutes a positive node. So we're going to talk about some resections, but to what extent a proximal and distal margin is required? Five to seven centimeters. Okay. And, and that's to ensure you, that we get, and it has more to do with the blood supply than it, it, it has to do with the, the margin itself, but it's in order so that we can get that adequate lymph adenectomy. And speaking of lymph adenectomy, how many nodes uh, do we need to get during our section? At least 12. Okay. How about stage four disease? So stage four disease, reminder, NET, NEM, and there's a distant metastasis. So how should we classify these? So you can break it down into resectable, potentially resectable if able to downstage with chemotherapy or unresectable. Okay. So what's, what's considered a resectable? So if it's resectable and medically fit patients, a cure to resection of hepatic and pulmonary metastasis can be performed. Okay. So the sequence of chemotherapy and the resection of the primary tumor and the resection of the metastasis vary widely by surgeon, institution, and individual patient tumor characteristics. It's safe to answer if given a resectable colon cancer with hepatic metastasis, three months of preoperative Fulfox followed by surgery and three months of post-op Fulfox. Okay, good. So security resection with of hepatic and or pulmonary metastasis and colon cancer. And I think that's a, a great way of approaching it. Three months of preoperative Fulfox, surgery, three months of post-op Fulfox. But again, that as you say, it's highly institution uh, dependent. Okay, so that was for resectable colon cancers. But now for potentially resectable colon cancers, which means they're not resectable at the time, you give them preoperative Fulfox and then reevaluate the resectability based on the response to that. And then finally, if it's unresectable, you do surgery only for palliation, whether it's obstruction, bleeding, or perforation. Yeah, I think an important principle for most cancers is if you're doing neoadjuvant therapy, don't forget to restage uh, after that and, and see what the response is. Because for, for a disease that progresses through neoadjuvant therapy, that of course has a very poor prognosis, but uh, absolutely agree. Okay, so what about adjuvant therapy? So who, who gets adjuvant therapy with colon cancer? So adjuvant therapy for colorectal cancer is stage three and above. So it's positive nodes or M1 disease. Yeah, that's a very clear answer. So it, it, certainly if you have positive nodes and you stage three or greater, you're going to get adjuvant therapy. So there are some stage two diseases that are considered high risk, like a T4 primary perforation obstruction, poorly differentiated, some microsatellite instability, or if you got less than 12 nodes on your resection, where adjuvant therapy is offered, that's a little bit controversial and probably outside of the scope of the outside. But just be aware that there are some high-risk stage 2 diseases that are offered chemotherapy. So what is the adjuvant chemotherapy regimen? So that is Fulfox for six months or three months pre-op and three months post-op, which that includes folinic acid, fluorouracil, and oxyplatinin. Yeah, so leucoborin, 5-FPU, and oxyplatin, absolutely. What about the, what's the role of radiation for colon cancer? Yeah, it's not indicated for colon cancer. All right, John, so let's move on to rectal cancer. So what, what, what's the workup for a newly diagnosed rectal cancer? So the labs you want to focus on are getting a CEA. You also want to do a rigid proctoscopy to document the level of the tumor. Do a chest, CT chest, abdomen, pelvis to evaluate metastatic disease. That's your staging workup. You also want to do an endoscopic ultrasound, EOS. Or you can do an rectal MRI for T and N staging. The MRI is particularly helpful to determine the tumor circumferential margin, the CRM. 
The CRM is a total distance between tumor and mesorectal fascia. And it's a very important prognostic indicator. Okay. Yeah, it's a very important prognostic and it, it helps you guide our management based on what we find there. So so along those lines, who gets neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy for rectal cancer? So locally advanced tumors, uh, the mid and distal rectum, we get these. That's T3 or greater or any nodal disease. Absolutely. Those are the key words there. T3 or greater any end disease. That's why those knowing the extent of invasion and the nodal status is so important up front. But what's the regimen for neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy for rectal cancer? So that's 5,000 centigrade radiotherapy that's delivered concurrently with 5-FU chemotherapy over a period of five to six weeks. Yeah, so that 5-FU is a radiosensitizer. And then when do we follow with surgery? About eight to 12 weeks after. And, and again, like I said before, we have pre-given neoadjuvant therapy. Be sure you assess the response and restage prior to proceeding with a resection. So with regard to the surgical management of this, is there a, a, an option for local excision for rectal cancers? Yeah, we can consider this in T1 lesions without high-risk features. Lower-risk features include well to moderately differentiated lesions with no lymphovascular or perineural invasion. The lesions that are less than three centimeters and are less than a third of the circumference of the bowel movement. So what's the big issue uh, or big concern with a, a local excision for a rectal cancer? Yeah, you're not able to pathologically examine the regional lymph node. Yeah, it, exactly. So that's why these T1 well differentiated, no high risk features that wouldn't be the only ones you could really consider it. And, and really, it takes this is advanced decision making and patient counseling is key because it can be enough to 20% local recurrence rate for even T1 lesions. So if the patient's a good surgical candidate, myself not being a colorectal surgeon and I'm taking an abside, I would probably lean towards resection. In reality, out there, there are people pushing the boundaries and even doing a local excision for some EMP2 lesions in poor surgical candidates. But again, you're not assessing the lymph nodes, high recurrence rate. That's likely not going to be the answer that I would put on the outside. So let's move on, John. Let's say, how would we want to imagine rectal tumors in the upper third of the rectum? Yeah, here you want to do a tumor-specific mesorectal excision with at least 5-centimeter distal margin. Yeah, so they're proximal up in the rectum. You can get a 5-centimeter distal margin. Again, that that mesorectal excision, perfect. So what about tumors in the mid to lower third of the rectum? So the standard's total mesorectal excision, or TME, as part of the LAR and APR. Okay, so with total mesorectal excision, 2-centimeter distal margins are ideal one centimeter is okay if you're very distal. If you're not able to get this with sphincter preservation, then as you say, that, that would be a patient that you need to do an APR on. Adjuvant therapy for rectal cancer? Yeah, so Folfox is recommended for stage three or greater who did not receive neoadjuvant. In other words, the patient who was understaged during preoperative workup. Okay. Also, Folfox is indicated at high risk stage two or greater that have received neoadjuvant therapy. In these cases, we assume that the pathologic high-grade stage 2 disease is a result of the downstaging by the neoadjuvant therapy. Perfect. Okay, so finally, we're going to move on to anal squamous neoplasms. So, Kevin, how, do, how are these described? For instance, what are the histologic variants of anal squamous neoplasms? So, you have the coequigenic, the basaloid, the epidermoid, and the mucoepidermoid. Okay, great. And, and you actually need to know these because they're going to try and trick you. They're going to give you a patient with an anal mass that was biopsied and the, and the path returns as one of these variants. And you need to recognize that you're dealing with anal squamous cell cancer. Okay. 
They're going to actually try to get you to do an APR when what the patient needs is primary chemo radiotherapy or the Nigro protocol. Okay, so what HPV uh, serotypes are associated with anal squamous cell cancer? 16 and 18. Okay, what patients have a higher incidence of anal squamous cell cancer? Immunosuppressed patients. Okay, great. So let's talk a little about AIN, or anal intraepithelial neoplasm. So this is a precursor lesion to squamous cell cancer, and there are many confusing classification systems. So what's important to know about AINs, Kevin? So AIN 1, 2, and 3 correspond to low, moderate, and high-grade dysplasia, respectively. So low-grade AIN, or LGAIN, is AIN 1 and 2. Okay, and then high-grade AIN is AIN 3. How about the treatment for high-grade AIN or low-grade AIN? So we know that overall these have a low rate of conversion to squamous cell cancer. Certainly it's higher in the immunosuppressed population, but there are some local treatments. So what are those local treatments? So you can do topical 5% amiquimod. You can do topical 5% 5-FU. You can do photodynamic therapy and you can do targeted destruction. Yeah, and, and probably the most important part of, of any of these above treatments is close clinical follow-up with surveillance every four to six months. And some people just advocate observation and, and the surveillance allows. But yeah, certainly be aware of those. How about the, the treatment for, for squamous cell cancer, the anal canal? So this is your Nigro protocol. It's chemoradiotherapy with 5-FU, mitomycin C, and 3,000 gray of XRT. Yeah, 3,000 centigrade of XRT. But yeah, 5-FU, minimizing C, 3,000 centigrade XRT. The key there is everybody kind of knows the buzzword Nigro protocol with anal squamous cell cancer. You're not going to see Nigro protocol written on the test. It's going to say chemo radiotherapy. So just make sure you're choosing that chemo radiotherapy and not just chemotherapy. How about persistent or recurrent squamous cell cancer after primary chemo radiotherapy? Yeah, now you're going to have to do your abdominal perineal resection. Yeah, so salvage APR is what you do for persistent recurrent squamous cell cancer after they've been treated with chemoradiotherapy. What about squamous cell cancer of the anal margin? Yeah, so you treat this more like skin cancer, so you do a wide local excision. And remind us what, we, what the anal margin is. This extends five centimeters radially from the squamous mucocutaneous junction. Okay, yeah, so, so squamous cell cancer of the anal margin is treated like skin cancer, and anal canal is treated like squamous cell cancer of the anal canal. Okay. Okay, and what about anal melanoma? What do we do with anal melanoma? Yeah, for that, you need an APR. Yeah, so that's why it's important to know those histologic subtypes and know exactly what kind of cancer they're giving you on the biopsy because it's just those squamous cell variants that we treat with chemoradiotherapy, and this anal melanoma is, is going to need a resection with an APR. All right, so let's finish this out with some quick hits. Kevin and John, quick hits. You guys ready? Yep. Okay, so let's start with Kevin. Kevin, transverse colon cancer with local invasion of the head of the pancreas. There is no evidence of metastatic disease. How do you treat this? So that would be a Whipple plus a right extended right hemicolectomy. Yeah, so you can resect these colon cancers that are invading other structures and blocks. A Whipple plus extended hemicolectomy. John, a treatment of an isolated peritoneal carcinomatosis secondary to colon cancer. Yeah, carcinomatosis is often associated with widespread metastases. So if it's isolated, cytoreductive surgery with intraperitoneal chemotherapy can be an option. Okay. Yeah. Cytoreductive surgery, intraperitoneal chemotherapy. Great. Kevin, what do you do with a rectal cancer with apparent complete clinical response to neoadjuvant therapy? Yeah. So this patient, current imaging cannot reliably predict the clinical, complete clinical response. So they still need resection. Yeah. So even though you, have a, you think you have a complete response, you still need resection. Perfect. 
John, a uh, patient referred for a hemorrhoid. On exam, he has a one centimeter palpable mass of the anal canal and biopsy performed in clinic returns epidermoid cancer. I actually just had one of these in clinic a couple of weeks ago, almost exact same presentation. Oh, how do you manage this? So he manages to the NIGRA protocol, which again is the chemo radiotherapy. It's a variant of the squamous cell cancer. Again, know those histologic variants because that's how they're going to show up in the question stem. Kevin, a patient with a prior proctocolectomy and IPAA for ulcerative colitis presents with a fever, pelvic pain, increased frequency of stools. You perform a flexible endoscopy, which shows mucosal inflammation of the ileal pouch. What's the diagnosis and what's the treatment? Yeah, so this is classic pouchitis. And the treatment is antibiotics of Cipro and metronidazole and then supportive care. And then decide enemas if it's not responsive to antibiotics. Okay, let's say that this keeps happening and they have chronic pouchitis no matter what you do. Yeah, then you have to start suspecting Crohn's. Yeah, and so unfortunately some of these patients, and that's why it's very important to rule out Crohn's and make sure you're not dealing with Crohn's when you do these IPAAs, but it's not always clear because it is a continuum. But a severe refractory pouchitis may even require pouch excision and ileostomy, unfortunately. John, so during a laparoscopic exploration for a presumed acute appendicitis, the appendix appears to be normal, but you notice that the, the terminal ileum is inflamed. So what, so what's happening and what do you do here? So you have to be suspect of Crohn's. If the cecum is uninvolved, you can perform your appendectomy to prevent future diagnostic confusion. If the cecum's inflamed, you want to leave the appendix in place. Either way, treat medically for acute Crohn's flare. All right, and that wraps up our colorectal review for the app site. I hope you found that helpful, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2024 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursue their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site.